See everybody here tonight. I'm, I'm thankful to see you all here back. There is a new, there's a new handout back there. Try to get everybody's attention. We'll get started. But uh, I do apologize. On the new handout, I accidentally duplicated the first two pages. So that's that's what's going on there. So that that was my fault. I I had the wrong pages there. So just you're just getting a bonus page is what's happening. A front and back bonus page. Uh, but that was that was my mistake. So there is a new handout though, and uh, you should have all the way now to page 38. 38 is the last page of the new handout. And if you, you still need some, they're on the, the back chair there when you first walk in. All right. And if I remember correctly, we left off on page 32. We were just getting ready to talk about verse 16 that's there in bold print on page 32. Well, I'm glad to see you all here. So, uh, you feel like you kind of rushed through the whole day. I was feeling a little rushed. The traffic was a little bad coming down, and you're not sure if you're going to get here, and then all of a sudden you get here, and now we, now we can just relax. We can relax, and we can enjoy studying this passage together. But before we dive in, let me have a word of prayer for us. Can we pray together? Father, I'm grateful to be here tonight. I'm just thankful for the nice weather outside, the change of seasons, the reminder that you still are in control. I'm thankful that we serve a good and living God. I pray tonight as we study about uh, the life-giving union that we have with your Son and all of the benefits that we derive from that, uh, that we would listen carefully to what your Word says, that we would be encouraged by it, and that you would use it to, to make us more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so let me just review a little bit. We had started on this paragraph, the second paragraph in what we call chapter 5, so verses 12 through 21. And the big point there was that death will not prevent our glorification because there's a life-giving union between Jesus and the believer that's like, but even greater than, the death-producing union that existed between them and Adam. Maybe I could think of a shorter way of saying that if I thought about it, but it's a pretty long sentence. But I think that captures the whole point of that paragraph. If we think about the bigger section, so remember, at chapter 5, a big section break took place where Paul starts referring to our hope of glory, the hope that we have of someday being in God's presence and a new heaven and a new earth and perfectly uh, bringing glory, perfectly representing Him the way we were originally created to be. But between that day that we were all hoping for and our current experience, there's three potential obstacles. There's death, there's our continual sin, and then there's also the law, which would be a specific objection or hurdle that someone raised under the Old Testament economy might be thinking of. And Paul, just one by one, is going to knock down each one of those hurdles 
and remind us that uh, there are no obstacle to God, that we certainly, all of us who were justified, will also be glorified. And so in order to counter this first potential hurdle, death, he makes this comparison and contrast between the connection we have with Adam and then the connection that we now as believers have with, with Christ. Remember, it's, we're like Adam in many ways, um, and Adam is like Christ in some ways, but Christ is also much greater than Adam. He's able to completely undo the ruin that Adam, as our first king, brought into the human race. So we had talked about that little parentheses there in, in verses uh, 13 and following, and we were just getting ready to talk about verse 16, which is controversial. So let me pick up in the notes. So verse 16 is likely the most explicit statement that all men, except for Christ, are held accountable for Adam's sin. So let me read this. This is chapter 5, verse 16. Uh, Paul says, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Let me just keep reading a little bit more. So it says, For if, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Now there's a very positive thing there that we want to hold on to that I think we would all readily accept that we can receive justification and life through one man. But before we get there, we have to think through, well, what does it mean that we needed this justification and we needed this life because of the actions of one man? That's, that's been in, throughout church history a little bit more difficult of a verse to address, okay? Because I think if we just put it simply, it doesn't sound fair to people. That's usually the objection. This just doesn't seem fair. So I'll go through a couple of the different options. So some people, number one, have argued that we're held accountable just because we follow Adam's example. So we basically are just following Adam's example that he put out in front of us and it's in that sense that we're sinners. However, I say, wouldn't Paul then have said we were accountable for our sins? Uh, why all this emphasis on his, his one sin, his one act? So two, others argue that we've inherited a sinful nature or an inclination to sin from Adam and are held accountable for the sins that this nature produces. Well, that is true. That is another side of the ugly coin. Uh, we are born with a tendency, you could call it nature or a disposition to sin, and we do all personally sin, just like Adam did, and we are held accountable for those sins. But that doesn't seem to be what Paul is talking about in these particular verses, because otherwise, uh, Paul's emphasis is on Adam's sin and not ours, and that doesn't seem to fit with this view. 
So three, this one's probably more common in, in Bible-believing evangelical circles, but some have argued that we were physically present in Adam. So this argument, sometimes you'll hear it, they'll go to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, that talk about how when Melchizedek offered a tithe to, to Abraham, that Levi was genetically, he was physically present in Abraham's body as one of his coming descendants. And so in that sense, Melchizedek paid a tithe to Levi. And it was, it was part of the writer of Hebrews' argument there. Well, someone have made, some have made the implication from that verse that you and I were all physically present some way genetically in Adam. And it's in that sense that we all actually did sin in him. That's one of the explanations. However, this is my response, there's no scripture passages that clearly teach this concept. I don't think you can just take the illustration that the writer of Hebrews is making and just put that back onto Paul's words. None of us would like that if someone just took an illustration that someone else had used and used that illustration to explain what we were talking about. Uh, we wouldn't say that was very fair to our words. Instead, I think this position seems motivated by a desire to give a just reason why subsequent men are held accountable for a sin that they did not commit. However, it does not really solve the apparent dilemma. How can those with no consciousness commit sins? So if we're just there as DNA in Adam's body, is that really us sinning? I don't think it solves the problem. It's still really just Adam sinning, right? Even if we were there genetically present somehow. Furthermore, why is Adam's one sin singled out? So again, look at verse 16 in your Bibles. I'll just read the second half of verse 16. It says, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. That kind of goes against the nature view, and it also kind of goes against the we were there physically in his body view. You know, if it's, if it's just us following the nature, why not emphasize a bunch of sins? If it's us physically present in his body, why emphasize this oneness aspect of it? So why are we not held responsible for all of our subsequent sins, at least those committed before he had children? So it seems like we would have been in Adam's body for the rest of his life, and all of the other sins that he committed, we also would have participated in. So why just this emphasis on the one? So I think, therefore, the best answer appears to be that Adam was our representative. He was our first mediatorial king, and he was the founder of our race. So God is, is the high king. He's the great king. He's the king over all of creation. There's ultimately just two circles. There's God and then there's everything that's not God, and everything that's not God was created by God. He's outside of his creation, and he's, he's holy, he's unique, he's one of a kind. Everything that's not him was created by him. That's just a, an amazing concept to think about. And so he, he rules over everything. But he decided when he made his creation, that inside of that creation, he would make men, man and woman, male and female, as his representatives. Like the ancient kings of the ancient Near East would put up a statue to say, this is my territory because it has my image. He made living, breathing, walking statues, living, breathing images who represent him. 
And over all of them, he placed a king, a head, that would be a mediator between them and himself. And that originally was Adam. He was not only our first father, but he was also our king. What he did had implications for all of us. So picking up at the bottom of page 32, as our leader, God holds us legally responsible for his actions. And his foundational act brought ruin upon our race. The solution is provided by Jesus, the Messiah, a far greater king who creates a new race through his own better foundational act, his death and resurrection. So we had a bad king who plunged our race into ruin. What we need is a second good and better king who can produce a new race and rescue us from the consequences of Adam's sin. So it's essential to note, moving along just a little bit there in verse 18, when it talks about all people being condemned by Adam and then all people being justified by Christ, that not all of the people who were condemned in Adam are the same all of the people who are justified by Christ. In other words, if you draw those out as circles, they don't completely overlap. So this is my attempt at this. So you have a group of people who are all who are condemned in Adam. And that's, that's everybody. Christ accepted. Christ is an exception because he entered our race in an unusual, supernatural manner, the, the virgin birth. But everyone else is in Adam and they were condemned. But inside of that group of people, there's a smaller subset who are all who are justified in Christ. So Paul's not teaching universalism in this verse. He's not saying everyone will be justified or everyone will be saved. He's using all in the sense of all without distinction. He's using that kind of language because, remember, this is very important to his argument that he doesn't, God doesn't have a different way of saving Jewish people versus Gentile people. We were all in the same boat, and so we all have the same solution. But it's pretty clear as you go through Paul's letter that you're only included in the all who are justified if you're putting your faith in Christ. And I think you can go to other places in the book of Romans, and I give you the verses there, where he uses all, and you can tell from the context, he doesn't mean all as in every single person. He means all without distinctions, without barriers. Now that might sound like special pleading, like Ryan, you just invented your own little definition of the word because it fits. So I'll give you one example to try to bolster my case. And this is our Lord Jesus. This is when he's in Jerusalem for his final Passover. And remember, some Greeks show up and they ask his disciples, hey, we would like to meet your master. They're Gentiles. And uh, Jesus takes this opportunity to talk about how he's going to save Gentiles. And this was what he says in John chapter 12, verse 32. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth... That seems to be a metaphor for his crucifixion, right? He says, will draw all people to myself. And you can tell in the context what he means. He means I'm also going to save Gentiles like these Greeks who just showed up to try to visit with me. I'm going to draw all people. And we know he doesn't mean every single person because Christ doesn't draw every single person and save them. But he draws all kinds of people. He doesn't draw barriers. He doesn't draw distinctions. That's the same point that the Apostle Paul is trying to make here. 
So let's go down to the second bullet point there on page 33. Uh, the second bullet point says, it's not immediate clear, immediately clear what Paul means by Christ's one righteous act in verse 18 or by his obedience in verse 19. Have you thought about that? It's pretty clear what the one act of Adam is. I mean, uh, we, we've learned that pretty early on in our Bible reading, what the one thing was that Adam did that plunged our race into ruin. But it's a little bit more puzzling with, with Christ, right? Because Christ always did what was right. All right, so how would we explain that? It could be then that Christ's entire life of obeying his Father is in view. So that could be one option. We're just, if you just took a snapshot, or if you had an, a bird's eye view of Jesus Christ's entire life, from the moment he was born until he went back to his father, he never did anything wrong. He never had a wrong motive. He never had a wrong thought. He always did what he was supposed to do, and he never did, he never did, not, he never did what he wasn't supposed to do. I'll get it right there. Okay? It was just a perfect act. So it could be that that's what Paul's saying. His entire life is one righteous act, or it's one obedient and that's certainly true, but I think it's more likely that right here, Paul's thinking specifically about the culmination of that obedient life. Of all of the things that Christ did to obey his Father, there's one that stands out above the rest because of its significance and because of the, the, just at the human level, I think, the difficulty of it. And that was Christ's willingness to go to the cross for those he saved. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, also talks about Jesus' obedience in that same way. We have to be careful when we think about Christ to not minimize his humanity, right? He's, he's one person, but he's also human and he's divine. Um, he's eternal, and he's also grew up and had to learn Scripture and develop, humanly speaking, just like we did. And those scriptures don't tell us how this works, but at some point he realized that it was God's will, his Father's will, for him to go to the cross. That all those Old Testament passages about the suffering servant were about him, and he was obedient. He did it. I think it's that one obedient act then that Paul's emphasizing. All of these benefits come to us in Christ. And I told you that I would point this to you, or point this out to you at some point in the notes. So let's just do it right here. All through this chapter, the emphasis is on the benefits believers receive, not on their own merits, but because they are united with Christ. So let's just look at these passages. So back in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, the first part, we will also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The second half, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In verse 15, the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 17, the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life. Verse 19, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And finally, verse 21, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's just a constant refrain all the way through the passage. 
The only way that we can overcome that death-producing connection that we had with Adam when we were conceived was to have a now greater connection to our Lord Jesus Christ, who brings us life and righteousness. So God can consider us justified and reconciled because he views us in union with his perfect son. So when he uses this language here, Paul, in verse 19, he talks about us being made sinners and being made righteous. He's, being, he's using legal or forensic terms. So he's not here specifically thinking down the road to the day when we really will have our sins removed and we will only do righteous things. Here he's thinking of the legal aspect of the fact that we are already declared to be right. You and I, because of our connection with Jesus, we don't have to wait till the final judgment someday and wonder what the verdict's going to be. The verdict of the future has now been given to us now. We've already been justified. We already can know that our sins are forgiven and that we have peace with God. So just like Adam's action legally made us sinners, Jesus' action now legally makes us righteous. All right? Um, let me just read a little bit from Schreiner's uh, commentary on the next page, that last bit of the paragraph. He says, As sons and daughters of Adam, we enter the world spiritually dead and sinners, but God in His grace has reversed the baleful results of Adam's sin by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. Such an imputation is an act of grace. It is totally undeserved. I think one of the possible objections to this teaching is still back to the, well, it just doesn't seem fair, right? Why, why should I be held accountable for what Adam does? I think there's two ways you can answer that. At the end of the day, I don't think any of these fully are satisfying. At the end of the day, we just believe it because that's what the Bible says, right? But there's two maybe helps that you can give to people when they're struggling. I think one of them is that even at a human level, we're used to being held accountable and suffering the consequences of those who are in leadership over us. That especially happens in a monarchy or in a dictatorial setting like Jesus and the first apostles were living in, but it even happens in our more democratic governments today. Our, the things that our leaders do over us, we, we are involved in. But even at a better level, I think, if we want righteousness credited to us, right, then we also shouldn't be opposed to the idea that sin was credited to us. Because sin was legally credited to us, it sets it up well then for Christ to be righteous in, in, in legally declaring us to have completed his obedience to God's eternal law. All right, any, any questions there over chapter 5 before we, we move along? All right. Yes, ma'am. Just, just a point, I think, that Paul came at that concept of us having Jesus' righteousness applied to us, coming at it from several different angles, just, you know, to, to like drive it home to us that that is where, where our salvation is, in him alone and not our own works. Yeah. Yeah, he, he doesn't just state it once, but he does keep coming back to truth from multiple angles. Yes. Yep. 
It's a good point. All right, let's go to chapter six. So again, let's try to think through how does this section that we're about ready to study, how does it fit into the overall letter that Paul's writing? So I'll, I'll say a little bit and then I'll supplement it with some words from our, our recommended book here. So chapter five addressed the potential obstacle of death. This chapter addresses the potential obstacle of sin. Will sin keep us from the hope of glory? Specifically, the presence of sin leads to two potential objections. So Moo summarizes the section. Are we merely treading water here until we can be delivered from this life and enjoy the blessings of heaven? Do we have to wait for our death or Christ's return to enjoy the benefits of new life in Christ? And if that eternal life has already been given to us in Christ, what about sin? Does it really matter anymore what we do in this life? You see how that could be potentially be an issue. And it seems to have been something that the apostles all faced from the very get-go. You know, sometimes we mistakenly think that the early church was very pristine and it didn't have all the issues that churches today have. But that's not true. Human nature is consistent. And from the very get-go, it seems that when the apostles went out and they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, one of the objections they got was, well, if that's true, then it doesn't really matter how we live. Uh, we could just keep on sinning and grace would increase. So these are the types of objections. So let's, let's go to the first one. In the first section of this chapter, so that would be verses 1 through 14, Paul addresses the first objection brought up because of sin. So he, again, he puts this hypothetical question that, you know, from a supposed opponent. He says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's verse 1 of chapter 6. Or other, in other words, if we live in the realm of grace, wouldn't our sin make the realm of grace show up even more? Paul's answer is a strong by no means or Absolutely not. You know, it's a, is it the King James, I think, was God forbid? Am I just bringing that out of my memory somewhere? But I think it was that type of language. It's just a very strong, absolutely not. So his, his thesis, his main point here, will be that we die to sin. So the objection at the top of the slide, should we remain in sin so that grace will increase? His answer's no, and then, you know, if you wanted a longer version of that, his answer is, we died to sin. Well, then that raises a question. How did we die to sin? When did this actually take place? So in verses 3 through 5, Paul explains what he means by that. At our conversion, we were united with Christ's death, and so we were also united with his resurrection. So let me just read that for us, verses 3 and 4. He says, Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So this happens at our baptism. So if you'd ask Paul, well, when did we die to sin? His answer here is baptism. And that poses a little bit of a problem for us because that sounds like a very mechanical view of a baptism that would maybe 
potentially tie it too closely to our salvation than we're comfortable admitting. So what do we, what do we make of that? I think here that he can say that this happened at our baptism, and I really do think he's talking about water baptism. I don't see any way around that. It, I don't think you can make this spirit baptism or any other kind of baptism. He's talking about when a new Christian would come forward and profess their uh, faith in Christ, they were immersed in water in order to join the church. That's what he's referring to. But he can refer to it because baptism was closely associated with conversion. It's an ordinance that pictures our union with Christ's death, and every believer is expected to obey Christ and be baptized. Since Paul could not imagine a believer who would choose not to be baptized, he uses baptism to refer to a person's conversion. So in his mind, you know, you could have said to him, well, you know, what about the Christian who's not baptized? You know, aren't they also united with Christ? And Paul's response, I think, to that would be, well, why aren't they baptized? Like, who, who is this Christian out there that isn't baptized? It's the most basic thing that our Lord's asked us to do. We were supposed to, remember, in the Great Commission, we were supposed to go and make disciples, and that would look like baptizing them and then teaching them. Uh, when you were baptized, you were standing up publicly saying that you wanted to be part of this body. You wanted to be part of this church. It was the initiation rite into the church, and probably they borrowed it from the initiation rite that the people of Israel already had for a Gentile who wanted to be a proselyte and, and enter into Israel. So it was something that everyone was expected to do. And so since it's something that everyone expects to do, or is expected to do, and since it already pictures your union with Christ, Paul points to that. That's the moment when you stood up and you publicly confessed Christ and you joined the church. And when you did that, you were identifying with the fact that you united with Christ in his death. It was a public demonstration of the fact that you had died with Christ. Yes? Isn't it, isn't it true that in that culture and that time, that uh, they were risking their very lives? It wasn't like it is today. When we make a decision and we take time to do that because we're not in fear for our lives, where they were. Yes. So it was a very, it was a very serious step forward. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And it, yes. So it was a very credible uh, confirmation of someone's faith because they were probably bringing upon themselves greater persecution. Maybe not yet at the full blown physical level, like that will come for the Roman Christians later, but at least at a social family level, uh, being ostracized from your family, perhaps suffering financially because of the, the guilds were also connected with uh, idolatry. So uh, yes, I think it would have been a more difficult thing for someone in that time and place to do than it would be in you know, 21st century America right now. That's so a, it's a good point. So let me pick up at the bottom of the notes, that last sentence. So just as Christ's burial indicated that he was truly dead and led to his genuine resurrection, that same power will raise us to a new life. So that's, that's his argument. Well, if you died with him, that means you'll also be raised with him. And that same power that, will ra that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's also given you new life, all right? 
So the first, his first statement is, how did we die? We died at our baptism. That's our, I think he's using baptism as shorthand for our conversion. When we were united with Christ, verses 3 through 5, we died and we rose with Christ. Well, what does it mean that we died with Christ? Or what does it mean that we rose with Christ? I mean, how would you put that in more concrete terms? Well, I think that's what he does in verses 6 through 7. He points to the fact that we were born again. That person who we were in Adam is now dead and gone, and we are now a new person. You know, so if I can use John's language, and the Apostle John will refer to this as new birth. Jesus, when he's talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, remember he says, unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I think we should expect biblical writers to say the same things, even though they don't always use the same words. They use different metaphors, different vocabulary, but they're t talking about the exact same concept. All right, so let me pick up there with the uh, those bullet points. So if you go through verses 4 through 9, Paul will say we've been buried with him. Verse 5, we have become united with him. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, we have died with Christ. And verse 9, we shall also live with him. It's that same kind of union or connection language that we saw in verse 5. So this death of the old self or old man is another way of speaking of the new birth or regeneration. The old man is not part of, but the whole of what we were prior to conversion, what we were in solidarity with Adam. Therefore, and I think this is a really important point, because I think sometimes when people talk about this, they're, they're unintentionally uh, referring to something that's just not true. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about themselves as a Christian and it's like they have an old man and they have a new man, and those two men or those two selves are there. And there is a concept that we will talk about in a second that that's getting close to, but that's not what Paul's referring to here. The, the self, the man that he talks about, it isn't part of you. It is all of you. It's all of what you used to be on the other side of conversion. That person's completely gone just as if it had been nailed to the cross with Jesus. I mean, in the first century, there would probably likely have been no stronger way for Paul to say that something is dead and gone than to say that it was crucified, right? Crucifixion was a very fitting symbol for something that had been completely removed. So therefore, it's not proper to speak of a believer as both the old man and the new man simultaneously. Or to speak of the old man as only part of a believer. It's the unregenerate man, I'm quoting here from Murray, in his entirety in contrast with the new man as the regenerate man in his entirety. Another way Paul will do this is when he's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, he'll talk about this old man or this old self as being clothing that you just throw away and you get completely rid of. And this doesn't work well for me because I tend to just hang on to my clothes forever, right? My wife will <laughs> point out that fact. I think you've had that sweatshirt since we were in college together, right? And I'm like, well, it's still, it's still holding up, right? So, you know, I just don't get rid of clothes very often. And when I finally do get rid of them, they're probably not even fit for the thrift store. But this is the idea, right? 
if they had clothing back then, they wore it until it was completely worn out and then you got your new set of clothing because the average person was probably pretty limited in their sets of clothing. So you got rid of one, you threw it away because it's completely rags and you put on a new one. Remember in Colossians 3, Paul uses that same imagery. I think another way this has been illustrated to me, this is a story that I've heard told, you know, that's always dangerous when you retell stories, right? Because they might be not true, maybe apocryphal, especially if they're about famous people. But a story is told of Augustine, of Hippo. So you remember Augustine is a famous person in church history, a pastor there in North Africa who goes on to write many pieces of Christian literature. He's considered a great theologian. But he's actually converted later in life as an adult. Uh, as a young person, he lived a very wild and reckless and immoral life, dabbling in different Eastern religions. Um, but there's a story told of him going back to a city where he had lived as a younger man, and a woman sees him on the street that had been a friend or an associate of him in his previous days, and she cries out to him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And Augustine, running the other way, said, but it is not I. It is not I. I think that illustrates the truth, right? The person that he used to be was dead and gone. He's no longer that same person. We didn't just get a ticket to heaven. We didn't just get our natures tweaked, right? When we were converted, something was reborn. We became a new person. That's what Paul here is referring to. So then it would be completely inconsistent of that new person to say, well, I should just keep on sinning then so that grace would abound. That being said, though, I think that does raise a question, though, in our minds, because there is still something inside of us that sins. There's still something inside of all of us that wants to sin. There's something still appealing to it. So we still, I think the proper way to refer to it is we have a, a sin nature. So a nature refers to a, a set of attributes that we're all born with. So we, birds have a nature that says that they can fly. Fish have a nature that says they can breathe underwater. We don't have either one of those natures. We don't have those tendencies and abilities. But we do have a tendency or an ability towards sinning. All right? So what about that? Well, I think Paul actually does refer to that in verse 6. So look at verse 6 again. He says, For we know that our old self was crucified. So remember, I'm saying that old self or that old man, that's who we were in Adam. And he's, he's dead and gone, or she is dead and gone. That person no longer exists. So our old self was crucified with him. And here's the purpose. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. So here he introduces a second Thing, a second category. That old self was killed, it was done away with, with Christ, so that this thing that he calls the body of sin could be done away with. And so I think the body of sin is this, this tendency that we have as humans to sin. We were crucified with Christ so that someday that nature itself, that disposition that we have to sin, would be gone so that, so here's a purpose of the purpose. So why was it crucified? It was crucified so that the body would be done away with. Why is the body done away with? Well, the second purpose of it is then that we 
should no longer be slaves to sin, right? And that's what we're all hoping for. That's a part of our glorification, that we would someday be completely freed from sin. All right. Um, let me pick up in the middle of that last paragraph. This body, this body of sin that he refers to, can progressively be done away with in this life and will ultimately be done away with at our glorification. The purpose for this doing away with this body is that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Paul explains, so verse 7 starts with a because. He's explaining that as a general rule, if an enslaved person dies, he's no longer under the power of his master. And this applies to the dominion of, of sin. All right. I'm keeping an eye on the... I think our clock accidentally got slower again, so making sure I don't keep you past the break. Probably when I hear the commotion out there, I'll know it's time to stop, right? All right, so are you tracking with the overall argument? We're to that last point there. Okay, well, I agree with you, Paul, you know, about this death, but what does this have to do with life? What does this mean that we have a new life? What are you specifically referring to? So he comes back to that. Remember, he... He mentioned it in verse 4. In verses 8 through 10, he comes back and explains what he meant, means by that. So Christ died and rose, never to die again. And those who are united with him have not only died, but have also been given a new life that will never be taken away and will eventually lead to a physical resurrection. Sin can no longer threaten the believer with death. In verse 11, Paul urges us to accept this reality of the gospel message as being true. Sometimes when we think of eternal life, we only think of it as the, the prize at the end. And the, the Bible does use eternal life that way. Remember when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he asks what he can do to inherit eternal life? And then, then in the conversation, you realize that eternal life is synonymous with the kingdom. So eternal life in his thinking is a place that we go to. And he calls it eternal because once we go to that place, we'll never leave and it will last forever. But eternal life also in other places in the Bible is a present possession. It's something that we already currently have. So as one writer put it well, and I'm paraphrasing his words, but the eternal life that will be our final prize is already coursing through our veins. It's already animating us and encouraging us and giving us strength as Christians in this life. We, we used to be unable of, to not sin. We used to have a gravitational pull on us that was impossible for us to break. We were not capable of not sinning, but that's no longer true of us. We still do sin. That's the sad reality of our sin nature. But we no longer have to sin. We actually have the ability now to say no to sin. We're capable of not sinning. That's the truth there that Paul teaches in 8 through 10. And then at verse 11, he, he reminds us, you, you have to believe this truth. You have to count that as true. Just like all of the gospel message. The gospel message comes to you. Things that God has done, promises that he has to make, but you have to take God at his word and actually believe that's true so that when you and I face temptation, we actually believe that we're capable by God's grace of resisting it. 
So moreover, if this is true, then we should not let sin reign in our bodies. That's verse 12. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. That is, we should not go back to our old master's sin and present ourselves to him for service. So remember, if you notice there, I've got sin with a capital S. That's intentional because if I'm understanding Paul correctly, what he starts doing in this passage is he's personifying sin, as if he's Mr. Sin. And he's doing that because of his slave-master analogy. So most, most people in the first century, as far as we know, in that area would have been slaves, which means most Christians would have been slaves. Most of the things that you and I do for livings would have been slaves back then. We would have still done those types of jobs, but we would have done them for a master, and he would have used us maybe then to help other people. So most people understood the concept of having a master that you had to serve. Paul's saying in that, that realm, that place that you used to live in, you had a master there, and that master was sin. You've been rescued out of that place. And he says even more than, I mean, if he had just said that, that would have been great that we've been pulled out of. But he actually says the person that was there died and a new person was made over here, which is an even stronger way of saying that. He's saying now don't look back across the wall at that old master in the place that you used to be and serve him. And when we come back after the break, he'll explain further why it would be a great mistake for us as a Christian to go back and serve that old master. All right, let's take a break at this point. Early now. Sometimes I can barely start talking. Other times, now you guys are all quiet. What happened? Yeah. You ready to roll? All right, I think it's that time. So we'll, we'll go ahead and uh, we'll pick up again in chapter 6. I feel like I kind of went quickly over that last little paragraph, so I just want to read it one more time, and then we'll see how it connects to the next paragraph. So let me just back up. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. So he says, In the same way, <clears throat> count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So I think that count, you know, you could translate that as believe or trust. You know, consider it to be true that this is actually true. You died to sin, but you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but you're under grace. So you see that, that offering language, that's the language of a slave showing up to ask his master what he should do. You're presenting yourself to service. You know, I'm ready, I'm ready to serve, what would you like me to do today? That type of thing. Some of us have had those hourly jobs, right? We punched the time clock and then we had to go find a supervisor and find out what, what are the tasks for today. You're presenting yourself to work. Paul said you used to present yourself to Mr. Sin, but now you're no longer in his realm. You're no longer under law is how he puts it. You're under grace. 
Now I think this is a little bit of an abstract concept, but if we work through it, I think um, it's not the way we would talk uh, today, but it probably made more sense to him and his original readers. He's thinking of like circles or like realms, kind of like countries with somebody over you, but you were in a place, a realm, and you had there a master. As long as you were in that realm, you had to serve that master. But if you could be in a different realm, you could potentially have a different master. So that's what he, he means. When he says under the law and under grace, he's not saying that there's not laws that we follow as Christians. And he's not saying that there wasn't any grace in the Old Testament. He's just using law and grace as a way of characterizing these two realms, these two spheres. Here's another way to see it. Let's go back in our Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, just to remind ourselves of something he said at the very beginning of the letter. I think you can see here that Paul's thinking in terms of these two spheres or these two realms, because he also talks about Jesus living in two different realms. So in verse 2, he's talking about the gospel. He says, The gospel he proclaimed beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, what's this gospel about? Well, it's regarding his son who, and here it is, as to the eternal life. So this is a, this is a realm. So he had a realm, and it was of, of life. I said eternal. I should have said earthly. As to his earthly life, when he lived in this world, as a human, earthly life, he got there by being a descendant of Satan, I'm, of David. I'm, I'm just all over the map tonight, right? Of David. It's, it's been a long day. I'm going I'm to drink some coffee. All right, so, so he's not saying, I think some people, we, we touched on this briefly, so this is a little bit of a review. Some people, I think, when they read this verse the first time, they might be thinking, oh, what Paul's referring to is... Jesus has two natures. He has a human nature that came because he was a descendant of David, and then he also has a divine nature. That's true, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about these two realms of existence that our Lord Jesus lived in. He was born of Mary, and he was a descendant of, of, of David. He's a descendant. He entered into the human realm and lived as a human, and he got there the exact same way you and I all got there. He was born into it. He was human. But then it says he also went to another realm. He says, and through the, holy, the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. So there's a, another realm that our Lord Jesus now lives in. And here it's a realm that's characterized by the spirit of holiness. So in some of our Bible translations, the ones that are a little bit more literal, a little bit more wooden, they use the word according to. So it's according to his earthly life, according to this realm of the Spirit. These are the two realms. Well, he got into this one by being a descendant of David. How did he get into this one? Well, it was by his resurrection from the dead. So when Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended back to heaven. He's now in a different realm. He, he, he's still human but he's a human who's crossed from one realm into the other. And what Paul is trying to get us to see in chapter 6 is that we're making this trip with Christ. We're connected with him. So like Christ, we were born into this realm. And in this realm, we were under laws. 
And here's the one difference, though, between us and our Lord. When our Lord was in this realm, he never sinned. He was always able to say no to Mr. Sin. That's exemplified the best in his wilderness temptation, right, with Satan. But for the rest of us, being in this realm with law and sin, it always meant we were sinners. So going back to verse um, 14 of chapter 6, what Paul is saying here is that sin no longer is our master. Why? Because you went from the place where he was your master, this place that we're going to call law, and now you've gone to a place of grace, a place where you're no longer characterized by laws. Well, that sounds good so far, but then it raises an objection. Well, if this place that I went to now with Christ, if it's characterized by grace, not characterized by law, well, then that means I don't have a master. I can just do anything that I please. That's the objection. So the objection then in verse 15 is what then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? So here, if you've been following Paul's argument, we had a master. He told us what to do, and we tended to obey him because we were drawn towards sin. But over here, if he's no longer there as our master, and if that master used law and we're no longer under law, then does that make us lawless? Are we free from having any master? And Paul's answer to that, the short version at the end of verse 15, is absolutely not again. Absolutely not. May it never be. God forbid. And then his longer answer is, you still have a master. You just have a new one. Everyone has a master. There's no such thing as a human that's perfectly free. We're always going to serve somebody. It's just a question of who are we serving. So what Paul does in the rest of this paragraph is he contrasts the two masters. And here he reminds us that this new master who we now serve is a, is a better master. And to try to go back and pursue that old master would be a drastic mistake. All right, So that's the, that's the big overall question. So I think one of the, the subtle points of this chapter is what is the difference between the objection in verse 1 and verse 15? That's what I talk about there, that third bullet point down on page 36. The difference between those two objections is admittedly subtle. It might be said that that first one in verse 1 is a question of sinning in order to gain more grace. You know, should we sin in order that grace may abound? You know, maybe if I could paraphrase that, you know, you know, shouldn't we just keep sinning so that God would look better? He would look more gracious. He would look more forgiving. That's the type of objection. In verse 15, it's similar, but here's the question is, can we just sin because we already have grace? Or to put it another way, are just all restraints removed? Are we just completely lawless as Christians? I think, unfortunately, some Christians, some branches of Christianity do kind of promote that thinking, that law only belongs to the Old Testament period and that we no longer have laws today. But that kind of forgets the other part of the Great Commission, right? We already pointed to the Great Commission. Remember, it was, we were supposed to go and make disciples. Well, what would it look like if we were making disciples? Well, it would look like baptizing them. And what's the second part? Teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That sounds to me like laws, right? There's specific things that our new master wants us to do. Or, so let's go down to that, the next to last bullet point. 
The one that you obey is your master, either sin or obedience. Serving sin results in death, and serving obedience results in righteousness. Let me read that in verse 16 again. He says, Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So now we got like another character in our story. So over here we had Mr. Sin, who was our old master. So Paul wants a name for the new master over here, so he just calls him Mr. Obedience. And you can see why he does that, because the opposite of sinning would be obeying. When you sin, they both have it, or when you choose your master, they both lead in a different direction. If you had continued in service to Mr. Sin, what's verse 16 say? It would have led to death. But if you continue in service to obedience, it leads to righteousness. In other words, verse 16 presents two options, and verses 17 through 18 make it clear that genuine believers all fall into option one. They are all slaves to righteousness. So let me read that, verses 17 through 18. See, it says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? You've been slaves to righteousness. So he sets up the two options. This option over here leads to death. This one leads to eventual righteousness. But then as soon as he says that, he addresses us as Christians, and he says, but you, you have made this choice. If you've been truly converted, you're attached to Christ, you have, you have made this choice. Paul knows here, I say the last bullet point, Paul knows that his use of slavery might be misunderstood because our slavery, slavery as believers is not precisely like slavery in the world. But as he explains, we as imperfect people sometimes need things explained to us with analogies. So he comes right out and says this at the beginning of verse 19. It's, he's speaking this way because of our human limitations. So we would definitely have to be careful teaching this in our culture because slavery today means something different than it meant in the first century. Slavery in the first century wasn't primarily race-based. It wasn't quite the same. But even in the first century, the slavery that he's talking about isn't the same kind. He's just making an analogy. Analogies, by definition, aren't alike in every point. They eventually break down. However, slavery, slavery well illustrates Paul's primary point in this section. Like we used to serve sin, we now need to serve God through doing what is righteous. And this will result in us progressively becoming sanctified. We did not stop having a master at conversion. We instead received a new master. And this new master gives us a much better reward. So this is what he says in verse uh, 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. <clears throat> So what's he doing here? He's, he's reminding you, hey, when you, were, when you were back in that other world, you know, what, what wage? 
what reward did you earn? You know, what benefit did that do for you? What would, what would be appealing to that? And, and, and there is something appealing to us about sin. It's that sin nature. So one way that uh, one um, Bible teacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, again, I'm, I'm relaying a story, so I think this is true, but he famously preached through Romans for a really long period in short sections, and he was known for his illustration. Of course, he was uh, Welsh. He was from Wales, and so he's living there in the British countryside. You know, we were always fascinated by those TV shows that show us the countryside in England, and they've got the quaint little walls that separate out the little fields. So they don't do barbed wire and stuff like we do here. So picture this lush green field with these little stone sectioned off pieces. But you used to be over there in that one field, and in that field you had a master and he never treated you well. You were very loyal to him, right? But he repaid you with, with death. That's basically Paul's point. And now, through the crucifixion and resurrection, you've been brought over to another field. But the problem is, is that wall is, is kind of short for us. We can still look back over it. We can still see where we used to be, and there's something, if we're honest, inside of all of us that at times still wants to go back over there. So Paul is very strongly reminding us of how bad of a situation it was for us back there. And he's reminding us of how much greater it is over here underneath our new master. And there is no middle option. There's no, there's no other way. You're either in one or the other. Everybody has a master. It's just a question of which one you're going to serve. So the main command of this section comes there in verse 19. Offer yourself yourselves as slaves to righteousness. Then beginning in verse 20, Paul gives support to this command. In some of our Bibles, like in the NASB, you have a little word for there, and it's indicating that he's given you a reason or support for this. He reminds the Roman believers and us that we had a certain freedom before conversion, but it was a freedom from the beneficial power of the Spirit. And it was a freedom that allowed us to continue on our path towards destruction. So if you have a wild, rabid dog on a leash, right, you could give him more freedom. You could give him more leash. But is that actually a good thing? No. It's actually a better thing if he had less freedom, if he was more restricted. So Paul says, yes, in a sense, when you were over there, you could do a lot more things. You had a lot more freedom in a sense, but that actually wasn't a good thing. It's actually a better thing for you now to be under the beneficial power of the Spirit. As slaves to sin, I'm quoting here from uh, Moo's commentary, as slaves to sin, people are free from the power and influence of the conduct that pleases God. They are deaf to God's righteous demands and incapable of responding to them, even where they were they to hear and respect them. For Paul makes it clear that those outside Christ, to varying degrees, can recognize right and wrong, but the power to do the right and turn from the wrong is not present. All under sin and are therefore should be are are therefore incapable of doing God's will. But that doesn't have to be us, right? That's not us. But look at verse twenty. He says, "But now, because that was a pretty dark picture over there." 
But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. The ultimate benefit that we will all receive for serving God will be the free gift of eternal life. It's an interesting thing. Eternal life is, is referred to as a gift because it's not based on anything we do, but the Bible also refers to it as a reward, and they don't seem to see any contradiction between that. So if you want to look at it from the perspective of what's it based on, it's always based on Christ. So in that sense, it's always free. But when is it ultimately given to us? Well, it's given to us after a long life of following Christ. And so in that sense, it's going to be a reward. It's going to be a final prize after we've been obedient. But again, when we finally get to that final judgment, right, and we receive eternal life as a reward for the things that we have done, it will only be because of His grace working through us. All of the things that we accomplish were ultimately because of Him working through us. But on the other hand, this is verse 20, He reminds us, for the wages of sin is death. So we, we, we remember that last part, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin is death. So, the, I mean, I think this is appropriately quoted in, in evangelistic presentations. Maybe like me, you might have memorized this way back. I remember as an Awana kid, way back memorizing this verse. A lot of people have memorized this verse. Uh, so it has an appropriate application but it is interesting if you think about it in the flow of what Paul's saying. He's using it more as a reminder to us who are already saved. He's reminding us of what it would actually mean for us to abandon our confession of Christ and go back to that life. So there is a warning aspect to it. And I think the New Testament writers will frequently do that because they always know that out of the group of people who identify with Christ, there always is the person in the group that doesn't truly place their trust in Christ. And there are, and that's the sad reality of the church, there will be people who eventually abandon their confession and go back to their old master. Because ultimately, what we can see in hindsight is that they never truly were born again. But if the person who's thinking along those paths, they have the warning of Scripture. And I think it's sometimes those warnings that actually keep us headed in the right direction. And here the warning is, just remember, what did that old master pay you with? And the answer in this verse is he paid you with death. The wages for serving him was, was death. That's chapter 6. Any, any questions there? Yes, sir. Yeah, so the, the old man is a bigger category. He's, he's everything that you were. So all of your, all of your guilt, um, all, everything that you had in Adam, I think the nature is a smaller category. It's your, it's your ability and tendencies towards sin. So a nature, uh, like a fancy definition, would be like a complex of attributes. So it's in our nature to stand upright, to be able to speak. We call that human nature, right? So when we talk about human nature, we're talking about all of the characteristics or attributes that make us human. 
as opposed to rocks or grass. But one of those attributes that we still have is our ability and, and attractiveness to sin. That, that ability to sin and that desire towards sinning has not been removed. We need, we need a term for it. Uh, Paul here calls it this body of sin. But another term that uh, theologians have used is a sin nature. So it, it, uh, it's like, kind of like our word trinity, right? The, trinity, the word trinity never appears in the Bible. But there seems to be something clearly taught in Scripture that God is both one and three. And so we've coined the term trinity to explain that. I think we all know from personal experience and from Scripture that there is something still inside of us that can sin and sometimes wants to sin. So we have to call it something, and so I think sin nature is a good way of describing it. But it's not the same thing as this thing that Paul calls the old self or the old man, because he's very clear that that's gone. Um, so then how do the two relate? That might be a follow-up question. Well, the, the nature means that we, we can sin, and there's attractiveness to sin, but the death of the old man is also that we can now not sin. Before, that old man always did sin. He was incapable of not sinning. That's who we all were in Adam. But now we actually have the power through the spirit of, of saying no. We actually can resist temptation. Any follow-ups there? Or? Yeah. Any other questions? In his first John one address to believers when he says um I Yeah, if we can yeah. he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's not the forgiveness of initial salvation, but well, I think he is primarily addressing Christians there, because if you read all of the letter of 1 John, he seems to be trying to encourage Christians that they really are Christians. So it seems that they've had a big group of people that just left their church. Imagine how painful that would be. And when they left, they were pretty ugly about it. And they actually claimed that they were the right ones, and that the ones left behind are somehow mistaken. And John's writing to the group that's behind, and he's saying, no, you, you truly are saved, and so I'm writing these things to you so that you'll have assurance. But it still has an implication, I think, for the unsaved person. So it'd be kind of like this verse here. So I said this verse here, 623, is primarily addressed, I think, to Christians to remind us of the, the wage that we used to earn in our old life. But it still has an implication for unsaved people. So I think... I think sometimes if we're careful, we can use an implication or an application from a Bible verse, even though that wasn't its primary focus, if that makes sense. Because God will forgive anyone who comes to Him and seeks, seeks forgiveness. Yep. We only have a couple more minutes, so there's no sense starting a new section, so I'll just, any, any last questions? All right, you guys don't mind getting out a couple minutes early, do you? All right, thank you. Yeah, Lord willing, I'll see you next week. Okay. <laughs>
good class. Thank you very much. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah.